Hey there, guys. Welcome to Moderate Party. I'm your host, Hillary Lombard, and today we are going to continue our exploration of the conflict between Israel and Palestine. In our last episode, we looked at nationalism and the role that it played in creating a statehood movement for both the Israelis and the Palestinians. And we dove headfirst into the origins of the conflict. So in today's episode, we're going to look at the peace process and how it ultimately leads to the war that's being fought today. Pardon the tasteless comparison, but it's kind of like Avengers Age of Ultron. The peace process starts out really optimistic and hopeful. I see a suit of armor around the world. Peace in our time. Imagine that. Then it's quickly complicated and corrupted. Had to kill the other guy. Wouldn't have been my first call. Now in the real world, you're faced with ugly choices. And ultimately, it ends up creating the very thing that it sought out to prevent. You want to protect the world, but you don't want it to change. One path to peace, the Avengers extinction. When I said it, you didn't know where I was headed, but by the end of this episode, you're going to be like, hmm, apt comparison. I'm kidding. Kind of. Today's episode is also a study of power and peace and what leaders have done for one and given up for the other. This episode's a long one, so put your headphones in, buckle up, and let's get started. When we last left Israel, they were coming off of an impressive victory in the War of 1967. They had just won a boatload of territory and were now in sole control of all of the land that was known as historic Palestine. All of a sudden, it was part of the Jewish homeland, and they're like, they're euphoric. There's a renewed religious revival. People are having, like, music festivals. The vibe is like when Thor gets his hammer back because he's finally worthy. But their streak of good luck comes to an end pretty quickly in 1973. Because while their victory is fueling a bit of a renaissance for them vibe-wise, it is not having the same effect on Egypt and Syria. Between 1968 and 1973, Egypt in particular is just stewing in this anger, like marinating in rage over their defeat. So in 1973, on the holiest day in the Jewish calendar, Egypt and Syria launch a surprise attack on Israel. It is an all-out war. That's how Israeli Defense Minister Moshe Dayan describes an invasion of the Golan Heights and the east bank of the Suez by Syria and Egypt. The surprise attacks came early this morning in the air and on the ground. And like, listen, regardless of the conflict, whether you're the good guy, the bad guy, the middle guy, I don't care. I just think it's so messed up to wage an attack on a holiday let alone a religious holiday. And it's like, there are so many other days in the year. Could you just fucking chill? Just on this day, just fucking chill. And I don't know, it just feels so very below the belt to go for somebody on their holy day. Like, I guess this is more of a lament for just like, I don't even know, world history as a whole, but I, I'm just, it's shitty, guys. It's just shitty. Anyway. It's Yom Kippur, 1973. Egypt and Syria have just launched a surprise attack. And when they do that, they know that they're not going to beat Israel. Israel's made that pretty clear, but that's not even their goal. Not entirely. They've gotten a lot more realistic after having tried this twice already, and now their goal is just to hit Israel hard enough to force them to the negotiating table. And in that goal, they do succeed. While Israel does eventually win out and deal a pretty devastating defeat once again to Egypt and Syria, the war lasts three weeks, and they're the bloodiest that Israel has seen so far since it became a country. Over 2,500 Israelis are killed in action, and 7,000 are injured. It rattles them, like it really shakes them. 
it completely crushes their sense of invincibility. One thing that really hits me, and I think it's worth dwelling on here, is that when Israel eventually does go to the negotiating table, the only thing it's really looking for is acknowledgement of its right to exist. I think that that's pretty sad. Basically, Israel gets a hell of a lot of land back, and all that Egypt has to do is say, like, yeah, Israel, I see you. And I just think that that imbalance says a lot about where the Israeli people are at psychologically at this point. That they would return 90% of the land that they won in the War of 1967 just to be acknowledged by one of their Arab neighbors. And they get it. Egypt is the first Arab country to normalize relations with Israel. And while that acknowledgement is a victory, it does very little to soothe Israel's newfound sense of vulnerability and powerlessness. Something that's only compounded by a wave of terrorism being carried out by Palestinian militants at the same time. The peace of what has what have been called the Serene Olympics was shattered just before dawn this morning when Arab terrorists, armed with submachine guns, faces blackened, climbed the fence, went to the headquarters of the Israeli team, and immediately killed one man, Moshe Weinberg, a coach, two shots in the head, one in the stomach. They've been holding 14 others hostage since then, and the latest report is that one more has been killed. During the 70s, a Palestinian militant group called Black September works with neo-Nazis in Germany to massacre the Israeli Olympic team. In 1974, Palestinians take 115 Israelis hostage, most of which were school children. They kill 31 and wound 70 more. The Palestinian Liberation Organization took Israelis hostage at a hotel in Tel Aviv. They hijacked a bus, killed 38 civilians, half of which were children, and wounded another 76 people. In 1976, they literally hijack a plane on its way to Paris. 47 hostages aboard that Air France jet hijacked last Sunday were freed today. But they stood nervously holding machine guns on the remaining 209. All of these things add up, and the Israel that emerges from the 1970s is more militant, more defensive, and more afraid. And those things don't exactly make them kinder. After the War of 1967, 250,000 Palestinian Arabs fled or were forcibly expelled by the Israelis, many of them for the second time since 1948. 250,000 people is a lot of people, but the majority of Palestinians are not displaced. They remain in Israeli-run refugee camps. And while they're living in those refugee camps, they're watching a new group of energized religious extremists start demolishing their homes and replacing them with new Israeli homes. And if you build enough homes, you have a village just like a fucked-up version of Monopoly. So these Jewish villages are called settlements, and they're widely believed to be illegal under international law because they're built on occupied Palestinian land. So imagine being a Palestinian, sitting in the tent that you now live in, watching homes go up where you used to live while your occupiers say that this is their land, not yours. It would piss you off, right? Of course. And the settlements are going up fast. One year after the war, there's already six settlements in the Golan Heights, which used to belong to Syria. By 1973, Israel has 17 settlements in the West Bank and seven more on the Gaza Strip. It stings even more if you consider that the average foreign investment into Israel between 1948 and 1973 amounted to $3,500 per Israeli, while the annual per capita income in Egypt was only $107. So from a Palestinian perspective, they're being occupied by a bunch of rich asshole foreigners that took their land, destroyed their homes, and they're being bankrolled by all of the countries 
that didn't lift a finger for them. And it's not just the West that abandoned them either. After the War of 1967, Jordan, Egypt, and Syria ghosted the shit out of the Palestinians. All of a sudden, the old tailor could not come to the phone. While the Palestinians are in these refugee camps, their Arab neighbors do very little for them. Egypt and Syria try to take back their land, but that's a self-serving objective, no? You can see how they would start to feel like they had been abandoned by the world. It's like, you're suffering and nobody seems to give a shit. Oh, everyone is talking about the prospects of peace in the Middle East. Kissinger, Dr. Kissinger had been there for five times, talking about peace. He never mentioned the Palestinians. Well, this frustrates us all. I mean, I am a Palestinian. I'm here, I'm talking to you. And I'm thinking about the hundreds of thousands of Palestinians living in refugee camps. Everyone is discussing peace and nobody is mentioning the Palestinians. The only mention we have is a solution for the refugee problem. All right, we are not a refugee problem. We are a, a Palestinian people, people like all other peoples in the Middle East. We have our rights, legitimate rights, exactly like all legitimate rights of all people. We should go back to that country, to our country in which we were born. This is our cause. Nobody is listening to us. Nobody is caring about us. The only advocate or representative that the Palestinian people have at this point is the Palestinian Liberation Organization, the PLO. After the Yom Kippur War, the UN declares the Palestinian Liberation Organization the official voice and representative of the Palestinian people. But the problem is that the Palestinian Liberation Organization isn't even in Palestine. Yasser Arafat, the leader of the PLO, had been living abroad for years. First in Jordan, before he was kicked out for clashing with the government, and then in Lebanon, before he was kicked out for clashing with the government, and then finally in Tunisia, a country with a comparatively small Palestinian population located pretty far away from the Palestinian region and the people that the PLO is supposed to represent. So the only voice that the Palestinian people have is in Tunisia, a place that most of them cannot get to or even contact. So a lot of good that's doing them. And in the constant presence of Israeli aggression and the near constant absence of PLO leadership, local Palestinian leaders begin to rise within the population. And by 1987, a grassroots uprising against Israeli occupation begins. It'll come to be known as the First Intifada, or the Uprising of Stones. And the reason that they call it that is because the First Intifada is largely nonviolent. There's a lot of civil disobedience, a lot of mass protest, but not a lot of violence. The Palestinian resistance during this period is actually quite remarkable. When the Israeli occupying forces impose long-running curfews on towns and cities, they start running underground universities, schools, clinics, all of it. They start boycotting Israeli products and businesses and actually start to create a national economy fueled by homegrown goods. It's a real testament to the human spirit and what you can achieve under duress. But the Antifada takes its toll. The Palestinian civilians, many of them children, are meeting armed Israeli soldiers with nothing more than sticks and stones. The Israelis, for their part, do not adopt a similar policy of nonviolence. The Palestinian protesters are met by a newly militarized Israel led by Yitzhak Rabin, the Israeli defense minister who's soon to become prime minister. He's the man that devised a broken bone policy towards the Palestinian protesters. The policy urged that breaking bones was more efficient than arrests because, quote, This style, breaking demonstrators' bones, is far more efficient than arrestment. For an arrested person would spend 18 days in prison. 
and then he would go out onto the streets, throwing stones and demonstrating. Whereas, if the soldier broke both of his hands, then he won't be able to go onto the streets at least for one and a half months afterwards. The Israeli response to Palestinian nonviolent protests during this period is horrible, brutal, and completely inexcusable. What makes the situation even worse is that the Israelis aren't the only ones that are reacting poorly to the First Intifada. The PLO's relevance and the relevance of their leader, Yasser Arafat, was starting to wane, mostly due to the fact that even though they were the voice of the Palestinians, they hadn't lived with the Palestinians for years. How loyal can you be with somebody that hasn't stopped by in a decade? The farther that they get from the Palestinian refugees, the farther they get from power. Challengers begin to emerge, and the PLO's group on Palestinian affairs starts to weaken. The first intifada puts all of this in stunning clarity, because it wasn't planned or anticipated by the PLO. All the organization, the coordination, the support mechanisms, the leadership, all of that happened without the PLO, which signals their weakening control over Palestinian politics. And while the leaders of the first intifada, many of them women, side note, did pay allegiance to the PLO and continue to regard it as the legitimate leader of their people, the fact that they emerged at all from outside of that organization was a threat to Arafat and the PLO's legitimacy. And they aren't the only ones threatening Arafat's power. Do you remember last episode how I told you that when Arab nationalism falls, Islamic fundamentalism grows to take its place? Well, at this point, Islamic fundamentalism is starting to gain a lot of popularity within the Palestinian people, and a terrorist group emerges representing that philosophy. Hamas. Hamas launches a few days after the outbreak of the first intifada. And they don't really organize in huge numbers right away, but they do start to tap into a growing trend of Islamic fundamentalism that's gained traction after the collapse of Arab nationalism. But what's important here is that Hamas refuses to join the PLO. And in doing so, they directly challenge the legitimacy of the PLO's claim to being the sole Palestinian representation. So when the first intifada breaks out, Arafat finds himself in a desperate situation. The Palestinians are moving on from him. They're moving on from the PLO. They've found local leaders to help lead a resistance, and they're Hamas curious. And Arafat is not ready or willing to accept that. So it quickly becomes clear to him that his only path is to strike a direct deal with Israel and to shore up his relevance as the only credible path for the Palestinians toward peace. These are the factors that ultimately lead Yasser Arafat to the negotiating table opposite Yitzhak Rabin. You remember him, right? The sweetheart behind that broken bone policy? Rabin is a complicated and incredible leader. He makes a name for himself as a military general. And he, like many in his day, believed that Israel would only know peace if it became too strong to eliminate. And for his whole life, he thinks of the PLO as terrorists, liars, and bastards. He actually becomes known for his iron fist military approach, basically meaning this guy is known for being a hard ass. But after the first intifada, something changes in him. He says famously, you can't rule by force over 1.5 million Palestinians, which is pretty remarkable for an Israeli leader to say at the time. I mean, it's pretty remarkable for an Israeli leader to say right now. And at that point, after the first intifada, Rabin's heart turns towards peace. And interestingly, it's actually his reputation as a hard-ass military guy 
that gives him the credibility necessary to negotiate towards peace with the Palestinians. The Israeli people give him more benefit of the doubt than they would give to other softer leaders. And Rabin does negotiate. He pursues peace even to his own detriment. And all of these roads bring us to the Oslo Accords. The Oslo Accords represent a historic breakthrough in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict because they're the first time that there's a direct negotiation between the Israelis and the Palestinian Liberation Organization. These negotiations lead to mutual recognition from the Israelis and the Palestinians, but it also marks a commitment from both parties to the idea of a two-state solution and the concept of land for peace, where in return for additional territories from Israel, the Palestinians agree to crack down on terrorist groups within their borders. The Accords also envision the creation of a Palestinian state for the very first time. Up to this point, as you might remember from last episode, those lands weren't supposed to go to a country called Palestine. They were supposed to go to all of the Arab countries that surrounded Israel. So this is the first time that we're, we're putting pen to paper, putting skin in the game on trying to create a Palestinian state. The Israelis, for their part, outline a phased withdrawal of some of their forces from parts of the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, which would end Israeli occupation. Finally, the Oslo Accords establish a Palestinian authority, which would be the governing body of Palestine. You'll hear the Palestinian Authority and the PLO thrown around interchangeably, and the reason for that is that they are basically the same thing, except that the PLO was a terrorist group and the Palestinian Authority was their attempt at a rebrand focused on governing. Think about it like Facebook and Meta, like it's the same, they just want us to call them something different because they did bad stuff in the past. Yasser Arafat was the leader of the PLO, and you bet your ass that he's the leader of the Palestinian Authority. But it is still a big deal that the Oslo Accords create a actual formal government for the Palestinian people in the region of Palestine. It's a big achievement. Or it could be. These negotiations result in one of the most famous photos of the last hundred years. It's a handshake between Yitzhak Rabin and Yasser Arafat, with President Bill Clinton beaming ear to ear right behind them, as though the United States did anything at all to make this happen, which, let me just say, we certainly did not. We literally were just the venue. For some reason, they decided to negotiate the accords in Oslo, Norway, but sign the actual document in Washington, D.C. It's basically like when you go out to a family dinner and you're really getting along with the waiter and you ask him to take a picture of you and your family and you're like, oh, get in here, you. You're our friend now. And in the moment, it feels right. But like when you look at it in like a month, you're gonna be like, who the fuck is this? That's basically this photo of Yitzhak Rabin Yasser Arafat, and Bill Clinton playing the role of waiter. The security of the Israeli people will be reconciled with the hopes of the Palestinian people. This brave gamble that the future can be better than the past must endure. It sounds pretty great, right? Everybody's really pleased. Rabin and Arafat actually win the Nobel Prize for the Oslo Accords. It is monumental. If I'm not painting an accurate picture of the optimism of the moment, just listen to Rabin's comments directly after signing the Oslo Accords. We have no desire for revenge. We, have no, we harbor no hatred towards you. We like you, our people. People who want to build a home, to plant a tree, to love, live side by side with you in dignity, in empathy, as human beings, as free men, 
we are today giving peace a chance and saying again to you, enough. Let us pray that a day will come when we all will say farewell to the arms. So there you have it. We solved it. No more conflict in Israel and Palestine, right? Wrong. So what happened? Why don't the Oslo Accords solve the conflict between Israel and Palestine? If you ask the Israelis why the Oslo Accords fell apart, they'll say it's the Palestinians' fault. If you ask the Palestinians, they'll say it's the Israelis. But I think that the actual answer is way more complicated than that, as it usually is. I think our first clue to kind of unraveling how this falls apart is looking at the motivations that led both sides there. The outcomes they wanted and the reasons that they wanted them. So we'll start with Yasser Arafat. You remember, before Oslo, he was in a real desperate place. He was struggling for relevance with his own people. He'd been living in exile for way too long. Other groups were starting to rise and make the case that they would be a better voice for the Palestinians, that they could lead to peace and prosperity, not Arafat, not the PLO. Cracks were starting to show, and Arafat had a lot to lose. He needed to shore that up. He needed to squash the competition. That's what he needed. That's the solution that he was looking for. So hold on to that thought, and now look at what the Palestinians actually got out of the Oslo Accords. So first, the Oslo Accords recognized the PLO as the sole voice for the Palestinians on the international stage. The sole voice. Meaning that if Hamas were to gain power, or if a grassroots group were to grow up out of the Intifada and try to seize political power, they would not be recognized. Because the Oslo Accord said that the PLO was the only voice on the international stage. Who does that benefit? It's not the Palestinian people. It's Yasser Arafat. The Oslo Accords create the Palestinian Authority, an official governing body for Palestine. A government. Just like ours. Maybe a president, maybe a prime minister. I don't know. But who gets to fill that role, that prime minister, president role? Oh, it's Yasser Arafat. The Oslo Accords do cement the commitment to the idea of a two-state solution, and they solidify the idea that the Palestinians have a right to a state. That benefits the Palestinian people, sure. But every other interest that the Palestinians had that they wanted out of that negotiation, they did not get. Instead, the Oslo Accords just promise that both sides will continue to negotiate on those issues. Meaning that almost every victory for the Palestinians in the Oslo Accords doesn't do a lot for the people of Palestine, but it sure as hell does a lot for Yasser Arafat. So I think that one of the reasons the Oslo Accords fall apart is because they weren't signed in a commitment to peace to begin with, at least not exclusively. There's no denying that Yasser Arafat did pursue peace. He did. I'm not denying that Yasser Arafat was there pursuing peace and that that was a brave thing to do. But peace was not his exclusive motivation. And I'm not even sure if it was his primary one. His primary motivation was power. 
The other factor that leads to the collapse of the Oslo Accords is extremism. While the Oslo Accords are being negotiated, and there's two sets of them, Oslo 1 and Oslo 2, there's a tension that exists right below the surface of both populations. On the Palestinian side, Hamas really starts to cut their teeth in opposition to the Oslo Accords. And they carry out a bombing campaign to undermine the Oslo Accords. And to some degree, it works. And it's riling up parts of the Israeli population that are enraged by this violence. They're looking at the situation and they're thinking that their side is seeking peace and they're only being met with violence. They look to their leaders and they think, how could you do this? How could you surrender the land that's our ancestral right to these people that would only seek to do us harm? That's the perspective of a growing undercurrent in the Israeli population. And the Palestinians are equally divided. On the one hand, Oslo gives them the first real glimpse of what peace could look like. And a lot of them are optimistic about that. But a lot of them aren't. They're cynical. They think, how do you break bread with your occupier? How could you do that? How could you ever trust them to make peace with us when all that they've ever done is make war? And what's dangerous about that is that when people are divided, extremists rise. Always. Look at what's happening in our country right now. So that's exactly what happens in Israel and Palestine. The extremists rise. Hamas carries out 12 suicide bombings over two years. Israeli extremists are active too, particularly those that are living in settlements. There's a horrific example of an American-born settler that opens fire on Palestinians praying during Ramadan. He kills 29 people and wounds 125 more. And like, guys, I just want to say it again, like, stop attacking people on holy days. Like, I would love it if you wouldn't attack them at all, but if you must, just like, can we avoid holy days and holidays for fuck's sake? Anyway, the settler attack, it's not an anomaly. Settler violence is on the rise, and it's reinforcing this idea to the Palestinians that the Israelis will never stop. They'll just keep pushing and growing until the Palestinians are all but erased or eradicated. But still, in spite of all of this, Yasser Arafat and Yitzhak Rabin have the moral courage to continue pursuing peace until a dark day in 1995 shoots the peace process right through the heart. Truly shocking news from the Middle East tonight. Israel's Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin has been assassinated. The evening spent dreaming of peace turns into a national nightmare. Israel, a nation in shock, grieves for its murdered leader Yitzhak Rabin. Hundreds of thousands have been queuing to pay a final tribute to the man who said he was ready to take risks for peace. The world has lost one of its greatest men a warrior for his nation's freedom, and now a martyr for his nation's peace. To the people of Israel, I want you to know that the hearts and prayers of all Americans are with you. Just as America has stood by you in moments of crisis and triumph, so now we all stand by you in this moment of grieving and loss. In 1976, Benjamin Netanyahu got the call that his brother Yoni had been killed. Yoni was a hero to the people of Israel. In the latest of a string of terrorist attacks, Palestinian terrorists had hijacked a flight with, with 248 people on board, all taken hostage. The flight was diverted to Uganda, where 100 soldiers were deployed to assist the hijackers. 
the job of recovering the hostages fell on the Israeli special forces, including Yoni Netanyahu. And while it was one of the most successful counterterrorism operations in history, it would still leave a permanent scar on the Netanyahu family. Yoni Netanyahu was the only casualty from that day. A warrior philosopher. He was a loss not just to his family, but to the people of Israel who looked up to him. When Benjamin Netanyahu, also known as Bibi, got the call, he immediately drove seven hours to his parents' house to deliver the news in person. The only thing I could think of at that point was that I didn't want the news to reach my parents through the, uh, through the media. Uh, my father was teaching at Cornell University at that time, and I was in Boston. In seven hours of uh, indescribable anguish, I made my way to uh, Ithaca, New York, walked up the path to my parents' house. There was a big glazed window in the front of the house, and I could see my father marching back and forth. And all of a sudden, he looked at me, and he saw me, and he said, in a look of surprise, he said, Bibi, what are you doing here? And he saw my face, and he understood immediately, and he let out a cry like a wounded animal. And then I heard my mother scream. And believe it or not, that was actually worse than hearing about Yoni's death. It was like uh, a second death. Before Yoni's death, Bibi had shown a strong interest in economics and business. He was working in a management consulting firm in the United States. A fun fact is that Mitt Romney was his coworker. But Yoni's death breaks Bibi's heart irrevocably, and he's changed forever as a result. I had lost my sense of taste. I didn't know if I could live. I didn't know how I would live. He returns to Israel to run the Jonathan Netanyahu Anti-Terror Institute and never really leaves again. Slowly, his focus on terrorism and his patriotism towards the nation of Israel allows him to climb the ranks of the right-wing Likud party. Netanyahu and the Likud party staunchly oppose the Oslo Accords, and they kind of think of Rabin as a traitor. He had broken with a bipartisan policy that blocks negotiations with the PLO, and they accused him of abandoning 120,000 settlers that were occupying land he was negotiating away. By negotiating with the people that wanted to exterminate Israel, and the terrorist attacks being carried out by Hamas during the same period only make things worse. After an attack kills 21 Israeli civilians, Netanyahu accuses Rabin of choosing to favor Arafat and the people of Gaza over the security of the Israeli people. Religious extremists hate Rabin because they think that he's willing to give up their ancestral holy land, land given to the Jews by God. They also view him as an enemy to the Jews because he would turn his back on the Jewish settlers that were living in that holy land. Rabbis in the West Bank start arguing that it's actually just to kill Rabin under Jewish religious law because he's a traitor to the Israelis. In March, Netanyahu joins a mock funeral procession for Rabin that includes a hangman's noose and a coffin that says Rabin killed Zionism. And that's just one demonstration. They're holding many. By October of 1995, their rallies have swelled to 50,000 people. And those people are riled up. They have posters that show Rabin dressed as a Nazi SS officer. 
They have a banner that says death to Arabs. They're chanting, Rabin is a murderer, death to Rabin, and in blood and fire we will get rid of Rabin. And at this point, some members of the Likud party are uncomfortable with how violent and rowdy the crowd is getting. They don't want to address them or make a speech the way that they had planned to. But on that October night in 1995, from a balcony in Zion Square, Netanyahu does address the crowd, giving credibility and legitimacy to the extremist fringe of the Israeli people, as he has been doing for the last year. Rabin is afraid. He thinks he might be losing the people. On November 4th, there's supposed to be a counter-protest, a rally for peace, and Rabin actually considers staying home because he's afraid that if he goes, he might be humiliated by how low the turnout is, especially if you compare it to the size of the right-wing demonstrations against him. But he's wrong. The turnout is enormous. A hundred thousand Israelis coming out to support Rabin and the peace that he pursues. Bigger than anything that Netanyahu and the anti-Oslo group has put together. It starts as a night of solidarity, but it ends with a tragedy that will set both Israel and Palestine down a terrible, terrible path. Rabin is murdered by an Israeli extremist who kills him to kill the peace process that he represents. And in many ways, he succeeds. The peace process is never the same. The peace process starts to stall almost immediately. Benjamin Netanyahu and the Likud party win power in the next election, and Bibi serves his first term as prime minister. It's a groundbreaking election. Netanyahu becomes Israel's youngest prime minister and the first to be directly elected. And to his credit, once he takes power, he doesn't go back on the Oslo Accords, even though he opposed them. Since they were signed by the prior administration, he doesn't go back. But he does slow roll them. Rabin had planned to make several major concessions up front to the Palestinians as a show of good faith, but Netanyahu trusts the Palestinians a lot less, so he wants to make the implementation more gradual, insisting that every act of goodwill from the Israelis is met by a show of goodwill from the Palestinians, one for one. But these delays allow more time for doubt to start creeping in. Eventually, the peace process stalls, political infighting ensues, and Netanyahu and the Likud party are soundly defeated by a left-leaning coalition led by Ehud Barak. At this point, the people of Israel made their feelings clear when they voted for a leader that would pursue peace with the Palestinians. They wanted peace, and Barak was going to try and give it to them. And luckily, he actually found a dedicated partner in U.S. President Bill Clinton, who was determined to go from that guy awkwardly standing in a famous picture that's not about him to the president that negotiated peace between Israel and Palestine. To President Clinton's credit, he does more to salvage the peace process than any U.S. president before or since. He hosted Arafat at the White House a dozen times, something that was unheard of in prior administrations. He put pressure on Netanyahu's hardline government. He held a summit at Camp David and ultimately negotiated the most favorable deal that the Palestinians have seen before or since. But let's start back at the Camp David summit. The objective is to reach an agreement on the core issues that have fueled half-century of conflict between Israelis and Palestinians. To state the task is to suggest the magnitude of the challenge. Behind the Israeli-Palestinian conflict lie the most profound questions about beliefs, political identity, collective fate. Etched in each side's mind are intense fears and emotions and a deep-seated commitment to defend their people's interests. There are no easy answers, 
and certainly no painless ones. And therefore, there is clearly no guarantee of success. At that summit, Israel offers Palestine a state comprising of all of Gaza and 92% of the West Bank. Barak suggests dividing Jerusalem and then letting East Jerusalem become the capital of a future Palestinian nation. One big point of contention is the right of Palestinian refugees displaced in the Arab-Israeli War of 1948 to return to Israel. Palestinians have been demanding a full implementation of the right to return, meaning that all of the Palestinians displaced in 1948, which is roughly 700,000 people, and all of their descendants, totaling about 4 million people, or roughly half of the Palestinian population, would be allowed to return to Israel and reclaim whatever homes or property they had left 51 years prior, as well as receiving compensation. The Israelis oppose this because admitting 4 million Palestinians into Israel would create a Palestinian majority and eliminate Israel as a Jewish state. From Israel's point of view, the Palestinians, by arguing this, are actually arguing for a one-state solution because it would effectively create two Palestinian states and eliminate the only Jewish state. So instead, Barak says that Israel would allow 100,000 Palestinians to return to Israel and support the return of the other refugees to the newly created Palestinian state or other third-party countries. Israel also offers to contribute, along with other countries, to a $30 billion fund which would compensate for the property lost by the Palestinians after the War of 1948. These are major concessions on the Israeli side. And from their perspective, it's a really generous offer, the most generous that they've ever made. But from the Palestinian side, it doesn't even meet their minimum terms. But still, many are pushing Arafat to accept this deal because they've never received anything like it. At the time, the Saudi prince Bandar said, if Arafat doesn't accept what's available now, it won't be a tragedy, it will be a crime. But Arafat does reject the deal. And he offers no counterproposal of his own. President Clinton is furious and allegedly bangs on the table saying, you are leading your people and the region to a catastrophe. But it doesn't make a difference. The next day, the Palestinians issue a formal rejection and the summit is over. Now, many experts debate whether or not Arafat should have taken the deal. But what is universally condemned is Arafat's decision not to issue a counteroffer or negotiate at all. But it gets worse. Arafat doesn't just leave the negotiations. He orders a wave of violence that will become known as the Second Intifada. For years, the PLO and the Palestinian Authority would deny that Arafat ordered the Intifada, they would argue that it sprang up organically in response to Israeli provocation. But in 2010, Hamas leader and co-founder Mahmoud al-Zahar stated that, quote, President Arafat instructed Hamas to carry out a number of military operations in the heart of the Jewish state after he felt that his negotiations with the Israeli government had failed. And if you're like, meh, can't trust Hamas, Arafat's widow actually corroborates this during an interview with Dubai TV. She says, quote, He said to me, you should remain in Paris. I asked him why, and he said, because I'm going to start an intifada. They want me to betray the Palestinian cause. They want me to give up on our principles, and I will not do so. I do not want Zawa's friends in the future to say that Yasser Arafat abandoned the Palestinian cause and principles. I might be martyred, but I shall bequeath our historic heritage to Zawa. That's his daughter. And to the children of Palestine. End quote. But all of that won't come out for several more years, so at this point, President Clinton 
is still trying to make a deal. He goes back to the drawing board and ultimately releases the Clinton parameters, which address key Palestinian concerns, creates a Palestinian state, and requires more concessions from Israel on security, territory, and Jerusalem. And somehow he gets Barack to agree. President Clinton and Prime Minister Barack are both in the final months of their term and more determined than ever to make this deal. But still, Arafat rejects the proposal, again without issuing a counterproposal of any kind. The collapse of the Oslo Accords and the negotiations at Camp David frustrate the Israeli people. But the wave of violence that they experience after the breakdown at Camp David enrages them. They vote Barack out of office, and they haven't elected a peace-seeking prime minister since. It's difficult to reconcile with the legacy of Yasser Arafat. There's no doubt that without Arafat, the Palestinian cause wouldn't be as high-profile as it is today. It would have faded and become a footnote in the memories of the birth of Israel. He made the cause matter to the international community. And Arafat does have the moral courage to negotiate with Yitzhak Rabin and to sign the Oslo Accords, but he lacks the leadership and fortitude to implement them and to reconcile with what their implementation would mean for his people. Some say that he was a true believer that refused to compromise on the Palestinian position because he thought that it would be immoral. Others have speculated that he would rather abandon negotiations for statehood than make a deal that would force him to tell his people they're not going back to their homes that they left in Israel. To understand Arafat, I think it's important to think about how he led and how he was built. Arafat built the PLO as an umbrella organization that represented a lot of different Palestinian groups. And he was able to preserve his leadership because he was basically the only guy that could hold all of these groups together. And in doing that, he learned how to absorb rather than confront his opposition. How to make sure that he always came out popular. Arafat knew how to fight, he knew how to resist, and he knew how to survive, but I'm not sure that he knew how to lead or really how to govern. He was much more of a survivor than a leader. He refused to negotiate, and when he was being blamed for the collapse of Camp David, he exploited violence and launched an intifada. Then he refused to try and contain it or de-escalate it because it would have forced him to confront Hamas and the militias within his own party. Arafat rejected the Clinton parameters that would have given Palestinians a state made up of 97% of the West Bank and all of Gaza, with compensation for the rest, plus a capital in East Jerusalem, including the surface of the Temple Mount. But still, Arafat rejects it. I think part of it is that when all you've known is struggle, sometimes you can't accept peace. I think in many ways Arafat is an extremist, there's no denying it. And peace just has no place for extremists. It just doesn't need them. I think Arafat would rather reject a deal than make himself irrelevant or do something so unpopular that he would risk the support of his people. It's a massive miscalculation and a historic mistake and one that has only brought further misery to Palestinians and Israelis alike. And if you think I'm being unfair to Arafat here, there is something else that I'd like you to consider. He was a billionaire. Bro, what? I know. A team of American accountants that are actually hired by Arafat's finance ministry determined that he was worth between $1 and $3 billion. Part of that wealth is locked up in a portfolio that's worth about a billion dollars. And that portfolio is funded by public funds, like the Palestinian taxes. But it's not controlled by the Palestinian people, it's controlled by Arafat. 
None of this is public. And the billion-dollar portfolio is only part of his wealth. He accumulated another billion with the help of the Israelis. That's right. Under the Oslo Accords, Israel agreed to collect sales tax on goods that are purchased by Palestinians in Israel and then transfer those funds to the Palestinian Treasury. But they don't go to the Treasury. They're transferred to bank accounts that are managed by Yasser Arafat. Because Arafat had argued that he needed walking around money to clean up Gaza. But he doesn't do that. He used it to fund a patronage system that makes him indispensable to the Palestinian people. You basically go before him and ask him for what you need, whether that be a job or a phone. And if he liked you, he'd give it to you. You know, like a mob boss. This guy was so rich that he paid his security forces $20 million a month in cash. He gave his wife an allowance every month of $100,000 out of the Palestinian treasury to live in Paris. He also screwed over the Palestinians less directly by taking kickbacks from companies like the General Petroleum Corporation that would basically buy gas from the Israelis, water it down with kerosene, and then sell it back at an exorbitant price to the Palestinians, defrauding them and ruining the engines of their car. But Arafat didn't do anything about it because he was getting paid. And it's not just that. When he supported Saddam Hussein's invasion of Kuwait, Saddam Hussein gave him a $50 million check. And he wasn't the only one. Allegedly, Arafat took payments from the Saudis and the KGB. So while the people of Palestine had a GDP under $5 billion, Arafat had a personal fortune of $3 billion. Arafat repeatedly puts his own ambitions, wealth, and relevance ahead of the needs of the Palestinian people. And as a result, he becomes a billionaire while his people suffer and live stateless to this day. It's egregious. By 2005, the Second Intifada was winding down. But it leaves a scar on the Israeli people. They're enraged that when they were seeking peace, they were met with violence. The Second Intifada is much bloodier than the first. Over a thousand Israelis are killed and thousands more severely injured. 2,000 Palestinians also lose their life during this period, and 577 of them are killed by other Palestinians. By the end, Israeli Prime Minister Sharon takes the unpopular step of evicting his own people and demolishing the settlement homes that they had built in Gaza. He pulls the military out and formally ends Israel's military occupation of Gaza, which is a major goal of the Palestinians government is in crisis over the Prime Minister's plan to withdraw from the Gaza Strip. Ariel Sharon's own party has vetoed the move, but he's determined to push on. And for the very first time, the Palestinians find themselves able to govern without the presence of the Israeli military or Yasser Arafat, who died one year prior. And the Palestinians feel his loss almost immediately. Because for all of his faults, and there are many, one thing that he did do successfully was hold various Palestinian groups together under the PLO, providing a unified front and giving them more political clout and power. He also somehow managed to keep Hamas somewhat at bay. But when he dies, that falls apart. His political party, Fatah, has become wildly unpopular. And the Palestinian public's perception of their leaders began to shift slowly but steadily away from idolizing them to being really suspicious of them and kind of resenting them. It wasn't a linear process. They always had to balance their skepticism for their leaders' performance domestically against support for the same leaders in their resistance to Israel. 
But ultimately, it amounts to this major erosion in the trust that the Palestinian people have for their leaders. Their credibility and their legitimacy begin to fade. But Arafat manages to navigate this pretty well and maintain his own image among the Palestinians. It's due to a lot of factors. He's a founding father of the movement. He was inclusive-ish. Like, you could disagree with him and he wouldn't kill you. He would just deprive you of wealth. But he really is a man of his people. And he's really credible as a freedom fighter. Arafat's successor, Abbas, does not enjoy the same assets. He's like DeSantis compared to Trump. Many of the same ideas, none of the charisma or likability, and double the authoritarianism. So in 2006, in an attempt to strengthen the democratic process in Palestine, elections are held. And the political landscape witnesses a significant earthquake. The Palestinian people turn away from Fatah, the political party of the PLO, Yasser Arafat, and now his successor, Abbas, and they instead vote in, drumroll please, Hamas. Yes, Hamas, the terrorist group. Yeah, 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 that's them. And it's a shock because, you know, they're a terrorist group. And this creates immediate conflicts with the Fatah party that was used to being in control. The two parties cannot get along. They can't reach a power-sharing agreement, and eventually factional fighting breaks out. Hundreds of people die. The Palestinian region is basically split in two, with Hamas ruling over Gaza and Fatah ruling over the West Bank. The political bifurcation of the Palestinian territories divides the people and cuts any political power that they had in half. Once Hamas takes power, the Palestinian attitude is like, all right, you talked all this shit, let's see if you can do better. And they can't. Or rather, they don't. Hamas can't govern. And while their ability to provide services could at least initially be explained away by the isolation that's imposed on them by the international community, its corruption, nepotism, and authoritarianism are almost indistinguishable from the PLO and the PA's own pattern of governance. They suck at it just as much as Arafat. Because governing is a skill. You can't run a government exactly like you'd run a business because it's fundamentally different. And you can't run the government the way you ran your terrorist group because they're fundamentally different. The Palestinians in Gaza become incredibly isolated. Many countries and aid organizations cut off aid to the Palestinians in Hamas-controlled areas. And Israel stops thousands of Palestinian workers from entering the country, thus cutting off their source of income. Egypt and Israel have security concerns, so they impose tighter restriction on the movements of the Palestinian people and goods through the Gaza border. And the security concerns aren't bullshit. Israel thought that by ending its military occupation, demolishing settlements, and leaving Gaza, the violence would decrease. But it actually increases under Hamas. Mortar and rocket fire from Gaza into Israel increases by 340%. Hamas invests heavily in developing a network of tunnels under Gaza to store weapons, conceal their movements, and carry out terror attacks. They use a lot of child labor to build these tunnels, and at least 160 kids die in the process. They build these tunnels under schools, hospitals, and other civilian infrastructure, using the civilians of Gaza as shields in the event of an attack. Not only that, but estimates put the cost of the Gaza tunnels between 30 and 90 million dollars. Some estimates have that number go up to $250 million. Meanwhile, the civilian affairs budget gets smaller and the military budget keeps going up. Since Hamas took power, the Gaza Strip has been subject to five major rounds of military hostilities, 
not to mention economic restriction and isolationism. The economy has collapsed. The poverty rate has gone from 40 to 80 percent. Scenario analysis suggests that if the trends from before Hamas taking power continued, the poverty rate could have been 15 percent by 2017 instead of 56 percent. Meanwhile, Hamas is rich. Its military budget is between 100 and 350 million dollars annually. They make 450 million a year from fees that they place on smuggled goods. They also have an investment portfolio with freaking real estate in it. Not to mention the money that is taken from international aid groups and charities that was meant for humanitarian aid. Literally all of the humanitarian aid that's being sent to Gaza is administered out or at least controlled by Hamas, a terrorist group. The Economist estimates that Hamas's financial empire brings in about a billion dollars a year. Its top three leaders are worth a collective $11 billion. Meanwhile, the GDP for the West Bank and Gaza combined has only averaged about $9 billion over the last 30 years. They're getting rich while the people of Palestine are in poverty. Not only that, but the people of Gaza have been dying at a much higher rate since Hamas took control than ever before. Hamas is seeking violence. Hamas launches the Gaza war by launching rockets into Israel in 2008, and Israel reacts with force. As a result, a thousand Palestinians die. In 2014, Hamas kidnaps and executes three Israeli teenagers, and Israel responds by arresting 350 Palestinians which is pretty much all of the active Hamas militants in the West Bank. In retaliation, Hamas fires over 3,000 rockets into Israel, and Israel launches an offensive into Gaza, and after seven weeks, 2,000 Palestinians have died. In 2018, 30,000 Palestinians protested the border between Gaza and Israel. The event was supposed to be a nonviolent demonstration that the New York Times described as a six-week sit-in where they demand the right to return to Israel. But Hamas sanctions the event, and soon after, some protesters start throwing rocks and Molotov cocktails at the Israeli soldiers, who respond with tear gas and eventually gunfire, killing 183 Palestinians and injuring 6,000 more. A few months later, Hamas shoots hundreds of missiles into Israel, and Israel responds with missile strikes on more than 50 targets in Gaza in 24 hours. Do you see the pattern? Violence begets violence, and it creates this doom loop of escalation. Hamas is escalating and Israel is responding in kind. The Israeli people sought peace in the Oslo era, and from their perspective, all they got for it was violence. So they stop focusing on peace and they start focusing on security and the use of force. Benjamin Netanyahu returns to power, branding himself as Mr. Security making the decision to put Israel's security and prosperity over everything else. I suppose people vote for me time and time again because they know that I'll protect Israel. And I'll tell you something else that they know, Barry. Again, I'm not sure I put this in my book directly, but I'll say it to you directly. They know that I don't squander lives. I've lost a person who was so dear to me and to my parents. I saw what they went through. And I think of the mothers of Israel who lose their fallen sons and daughters, and I'm not an adventurer. I use force when necessary, but I use it judiciously because I know the cost of war. I've been through war. 
I've been through wars and battles, and I've lost loved ones. And while the airstrikes that you come to associate with Israel developed largely under his rule, it's important to note that between 2009 and 2019, when Netanyahu is in power, it's actually one of the quietest eras in the history of Israel. There's no major war between Arab countries and Israel. And he doesn't reoccupy Gaza. And while Hamas is escalating, they're escalating their acts of terror. And terrorism drives fear, but not casualty counts. And whether you like him or hate him, there's no denying that Netanyahu was largely very effective. He transformed the Israeli economy and brought economic growth and stability. He dramatically expanded Israel's diplomatic footprint and provided security during years of regional and international instability. But he did all of that by keeping the Palestinians weak and divided, launching airstrikes, and maintaining the status quo instead of seeking a peace solution. America's been the world police since World War II. We're a superpower. We have been for as long as anyone listening to this podcast has been alive. And that actually clouds our entire perspective on the world. The United States and the people in it are always thinking about other countries and the impact that we could have on them. For better or worse, consider how worked up so many people are about the airstrikes going on in Gaza. They're upset, they're protesting, they're putting pressure on our political leaders, all because they think that we could do something about it and they're mad that we're not. But I think that it makes it difficult for us to understand and empathize with the positions of people that live in countries that are not superpowers. Benjamin Netanyahu only thinks about Israel. To understand him, I think that we need to understand that. His only objective is the strength and preservation of Israel. He's not for anyone else. He doesn't represent anyone else. His only priority is Israel, specifically its security. A weak and divided Palestine is good for Israel. Managing the status quo is good for Israel. Pushing Palestinians further and farther from Israel keeps it safe, in theory, which is good for Israel. Because he doesn't think that Palestinians want peace with Israel. Because of the Palestinians don't want peace with Israel. They want peace without Israel. They don't want a peace, uh, a state next to Israel. They want a state instead of Israel. So anytime that you're looking at Netanyahu and thinking like, why, how can he do this to the Palestinians? I think it's important to really understand that he's not here for the Palestinians. He's here for the Israelis. And from his perspective, he is making the retribution that he carries out on Hamas so brutal that nobody will ever want to mess with Israel again because he thinks that that is how he keeps Israel safe. And you can disagree with the effectiveness of that strategy on the merits, but I think that this outcry and this confusion just really stems from the fact that we Americans are constantly viewing ourselves as a player on the world stage. And other countries don't. So Bibi is a really effective prime minister. Many Israelis can't really imagine their lives without him. He serves five terms as prime minister. But things kind of start to turn for Bibi in 2019 when he's indicted on several corruption charges, including bribery, fraud, and breach of trust. Soon after, his political opponents cobbled together a coalition of parties from across the ideological spectrum. The only thing that unites these people is that they don't like Bibi. And they successfully remove him from power. But when you put together that kind of ragtag coalition, it can't really stick it out that long. 
In this case, they only last a year before breaking up and sending voters back to the ballot box. And when that happens, Bibi returns to power for his sixth term as prime minister. And in order to do that, he had to build a governing coalition out of the other political parties in Israel. And all the good ones are taken. The only parties that really want to support him in the midst of his corruption trial are the ultra-right-wing Religious Zionism Coalition. And these ultra-right-wingers are nuts. One of the leaders is called Ben Gavir, who was convicted of inciting racism when he was a teenager, has called for the expulsion of disloyal Arabs, and supports annexing the West Bank and taking revenge on anybody that stands in their way. Not to mention, he has 53 indictments and 8 convictions for serious crimes, and now he's in charge of the police! Yeah, he's the Minister of National Security. This guy is so radical that he was rejected by the IDF, the Israeli military, in a country that requires you to serve. And then there's this guy called Smotrich who advocates for segregation in maternity wards, claims that illiterate Arabs are stealing university spots from Jewish applicants, advocates for turning Israel into a theocracy, meaning it would be governed by religious law, and that's the guy that they put in charge of settlements in the West Bank, which is especially frightening for the Palestinians because he was a settlement leader. But Bibi can't be picky, after all. He needed to make friends that wouldn't be bothered by his efforts to overturn the judiciary system so that he could dodge jail time. And if that's the goal, you can only align yourself with the crazies. Since taking power, the new ultra-right-wing government took extremism into the mainstream, and the results were quite predictable. They approved thousands of new settlement homes, something that the UN considers to be illegal, legalized dozens of settler outposts for future settlements, and stated a goal of annexing the West Bank, which would effectively doom any chance for Palestinian statehood. Not to mention that there's a bunch of Palestinians living there now. So Israel's new government must be pretty scary for the Palestinians, right? And then, on top of that, word gets out that Saudi Arabia is going to normalize relations with Israel, which makes them the latest in a string of Arab countries to do so. This is a result of the Abraham Accords that were passed during the Trump administration. To the Palestinians, it looks like the Arab world has moved on. They don't care about them or their cause anymore. Which brings us here. To Hamas's barbaric attack on Israel that took place on October 7th, and Israel's relentless retaliation that's been occurring ever since. A couple things really struck me while I was researching and writing this episode. The first is just a new depth of despair that I feel for the people of Palestine. The Palestinian people have been abused, used, manipulated, and betrayed by everyone that they've ever put faith in. The Arab countries gave up on them after losing two wars to Israel, and then they just left them there. Arafat profited off of them and used them to further his own ambitions for power instead of delivering them a homeland. Israeli leaders gave up on peace and opted for force instead, slowly chipping away at what little land was promised to the Palestinians. Then they filled that very same land with Jewish settlements. Fatah, the party that was supposed to lead them, was corrupt, ineffective, and incredibly unpopular. But Abbas, the leader, now 88 years old, refuses to hold elections. He tried once, Hamas won, and he hasn't stepped aside or held another since. They would rather split the Palestinian people in half than step down and give up power. And Hamas is no different. They haven't allowed elections either, because they think that they would lose. 
The average age for a Palestinian is 19 years old, but nobody under 34 has ever voted, meaning they are represented by people that they did not elect and they don't trust. But it's not just that. A survey conducted prior to the October 7th attack said that 75% of Gaza citizens that were surveyed had run out of food and couldn't afford to buy more within the last 30 days. Meanwhile, Hamas pillages their treasury to support their terrorist activities. They use the children of Gaza to build tunnels and then hide from Israel underneath them. But Palestinians accept these tunnels because for a while they were used to move goods into Gaza, the only way that they had to get them during the Israeli and Egyptian blockade. And even though they guarantee civilian casualties, they also helped Hamas fight Israel something that Palestinians think no other force could or would do. If Hamas gave a damn about the Palestinian state, they would have shared power with Fatah or negotiated with Israel to end the blockade, but they didn't. And if they didn't want to negotiate with Israel, they could have tried negotiating with Egypt, but they didn't. They chose power instead. If they cared about the Palestinian people, they wouldn't hide in tunnels underneath them and use them as shields. If they cared about Palestinian lives, they wouldn't have attacked Israel, butchered babies, and massacred civilians, then take hostages and bring them back into Gaza, knowing that Israel would retaliate, knowing that people would die. But they don't care about Palestinian lives, they only care about Israeli deaths. The Palestinian people are just means of gaining money and maintaining power. Yet they still view Hamas as their best option. Can you imagine for a second how isolated, disenfranchised, and helpless you have to feel to be grateful for Hamas? In Israel, Netanyahu has courted dangerous extremists because he would rather partner with them than give up power, a power that ultimately has corrupted him, allegedly. And now his far-right coalition legitimizes the violent Israeli settler movement that attacks innocent Palestinians regularly and illegally occupies their land. This government seeks to take what little land the Palestinians have, and Netanyahu hasn't stopped them, he's enabled them. Because doing so keeps him in power. This whole conflict has been accelerated and perpetuated that shows power over peace, and over their people. But the other thing that I can't shake, the other, harder question, is that if peace was on the table, would either country even want it? The Israelis sought peace in the 90s and only got violence as a result. And since then, they've moved farther and farther away from a two-state solution. And after October 7th, it's hard to imagine that Israelis are moving closer to compromise. The Palestinians, for their part, don't have a majority that supports a two-state solution. They still want a one-state solution without Israel. They want all of the lands of historic Palestine and a full right to return. Plus compensation from Israel, the country that they would seek to exterminate. And even if they did have a group that would support two states, they would have to overthrow Hamas to get it. Hamas, who makes a billion dollars every year. A grassroots organizer wouldn't stand a chance. They wouldn't have the resources to overthrow Hamas, let alone the will. So where does that leave us? Where do we go? Since October 7th, 26,000 Palestinians have been killed. Hostages haven't been released. 
And there are only signs of escalation from both sides. Not only that, but a regional conflict is already breaking out. Houthi rebels in Yemen are firing at U.S. cargo ships and the U.S. military is firing back. All of this is escalating quickly. Egypt and Israel are reportedly pursuing ways to halt the war. Allegedly, Israel offered a two-month ceasefire in return for hostages being released. They also agreed to free their Palestinian prisoners and let Hamas leaders relocate to other countries and live in exile. But Hamas has allegedly rejected that offer, saying that no hostages would be released until Israel ends its offensive and withdraws from Gaza. Hamas leaders also refuse to go into exile. Why? Because there's no power in that. Netanyahu, in response, has vowed to continue the war until all of their objectives are met. And as of now, the Israeli public appears to overwhelmingly support the war effort. With a better understanding of how we got here and why it's so hard to get out. I wish I could leave you on a better note, but unfortunately, that's it for today's episode. I would love to hear your thoughts. I know that I came at you with a lot. If you want to talk about it, you can always send me an email. Talk at moderatepartypodcast.com. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to like, rate, review, follow, do, I don't know, do all the things. You know what they are. Thanks, guys. I'll talk to you again soon.